Shalom, this is Rabbi David Tilkiger of Congregation Mayim Chaim, the Eastern Shores Messianic Synagogue in Daphne, Alabama. I want to thank you for taking the time to listen to this podcast of our message from Shabbat service. We pray it is a blessing to you and that you see the beauty and light of Yeshua Meshicheinu Yeshua, our Messiah, in every word you hear. Amen. Um, so in a moment, I'm going to start to talk. I'm going to do something I don't usually do, and I'm saying this before the video starts uh, because that goes live to Facebook and uh, I don't feel like having that, this said on Facebook, but uh, the, I'm going to do something I don't normally do, which is there's a video I'm going to play uh, at some point in the message uh, to lead into something, but, uh, so I just wanted to give you a heads up that I'm going to not be talking for a few minutes, which most of you will be excited about, um, but, uh, but don't be alarmed. I'm not like, you know, having a heart attack or something. There's a video playing behind my head. So, <laughs> all right, with that said, where did I lose Danielle at? All right. Uh, actually, I'm going to recruit Dan instead. D- Danielle vanished on me, so I'm going to let you start the recording, <laughs> the video. <laughs> Just press the blue button. Avrahamim, Father of mercies, we worship you, we love you, and we adore you. Father, I thank you for this Shabbat, for this opportunity you've given, or this Shabbat, this Rosh Hashanah. Uh, which is a Sabbath, this opportunity you've given us to uh, gather together as a holy convocation to worship in your midst, to hear from you, to receive from you, and interact with you. Lord, I pray that as uh, we open up the word this morning, that you will speak boldly into our hearts and our lives, that it will be your voice heard, your words received, nothing of me involved except that which you have ordained for this purpose. Father, I ask that you open our hearts to receive from you and to understand what you have in store as we move through your word today. B'shem Yeshua Meshachinu. In the name of Yeshua, our Messiah, we pray and everyone says, Amen and Amen. All right, so uh, I, I'm going to be talking about something a little different. I've, I've never actually talked, uh, taught on this uh, in terms of like a message uh, in service before, uh, but uh, it really is on my heart to, to touch on this today. So after service, we're going to have Oneg. After Oneg, we're going to go out to the pier in Fairhope and we're going to do Tashlich. And some of you may have never experienced Tashlik before, and you may be going, what in the world is that? Um, other than a weird-sounding word. Um, Tashlik's really fun to say. Try it. Tashlik. But uh, we're going to be going to do Tashlik, and Tashlik is a beautiful ceremony. It's one of my favorite, out of the entire year of Jewish tradition, Tashlik is one of my favorite traditions in Judaism. Because like I said earlier in the Torah service, everything that we do in Jewish life is done in a manner of which we are physically interacting with uh, the Word of God. We are physically interacting with God's promises, with prophecy, whatever it may be. We are physically involved in interacting with it, and Tashlik is one of those things. Tashlik is based out of a passage of Scripture from Micah 7, uh, in which the Lord says it will cast our sins in the depths of the sea. And so we go out to the uh, body of living water, Mayim Chaim, convenient because it's our name, but we go out to a body of living water and we say a few prayers, we read a few scriptures, uh, we take some breadcrumbs and everybody takes a few minutes to just introspectively dig down deep and uh, ask the Lord to reveal those deep dark things that we still need to repent from and what have you and uh, we ceremoniously take those and symbolically take the breadcrumbs 
and we cast them into the waters, and it's uh, uh, us interacting with the reality of God casting our sins in the depths of the sea, and then you watch them as they fade away or as fish come up and, and eat it or uh, the seagulls come down and steal it, uh, whatever it may be, you'll watch as it all literally fades away and disappears before our eyes. And, uh, and it's a really powerful image for us as believers who believe wholeheartedly in forgiveness, redemption, salvation in the blood of the Lamb, that by the blood of the Lamb, we have been and are capable of being washed clean, white as snow. So if you have your scriptures, I want you to open up to Matthew, uh, Matthew to Micah chapter 6. Give you a little background here on the prophet Micah. Micah was a uh, uh, contemporary of Isaiah, so he's writing in roughly the same time period as Isaiah, so leading up to, uh, in essence, the Babylonian captivity. Uh, he is writing during a period of time in which Israel, if you remember reading in uh, Kings and Chronicles, the Israel kind of has this whole lineage of, uh, especially uh, once we focus primarily on the southern kingdom as the northern kingdom had already faded away from serving the Lord. But what we notice is that, that Israel as a whole, whether it's northern kingdom or southern kingdom, tends to have this uh, kind of roller coaster experience with kings, right? They've got kings that are just absolutely awful. And the whole country pays for it, and then they cry out in repentance, and the Lord brings in a king who is righteous. And in his righteousness, Israel is led back to righteousness. And then they inevitably, he, you know, eventually they die. You know, that king serves for 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, whatever it may be. He dies, and another king arises, and this king leads them back to, uh, to, to um, uh, the opposite of righteousness, leads them back to sin, leads them back to idolatry, whatever it may be. And there's just this up and down, over and over again thing. Well, at this point that Micah is writing uh, the, this prophecy from the Lord, uh, Micah is living during a period in which Israel is dealt with a string of really bad kings with one and a half good kings in the mix. I say one and a half because one of them kind of sort of did most things right, except he didn't cleanse the temple and take away all the idolatry, whereas the, the one full good king actually did take away most of the idolatry. Um, but as we look at this, Israel has this constant battle back and forth, and in particular, one king uh, uh, not only goes as far as to build relationship with uh, uh, Assyria uh, and and makes this, this, this kind of um, treaty with them and develops this whole bad relationship, but he goes and sets, rearranges the furniture in the tavern or the temple, and he actually changes some of the furniture in the temple, and he brings in idolatrous pagan furnishings into the holy temple, and uh, I mean, just beyond imagination how terrible he made this, uh, things be. So Micah is now coming forth, and, and Micah is known as kind of the, the somewhat crazy uh, prophet to some degree. If you read in Micah, I think it's Micah 2, where he says, look, I'll go so far as to strip down naked and run through the streets to preach the word of God, if that's what it takes. I'm paraphrasing. That's in essence what he says. Uh, if that's what it takes to get your attention. Um, so uh, it, it, it kind of gets a little interesting, but he is in essence the voice and heart of social justice in the scriptures. And I don't mean social justice like we hear today. You know, that's a, a, a hot topic word that goes around all over the place and, uh, and what have you. But God's idea of social justice and our idea are not necessarily the same. Like, we have an idea that is loosely kind of familiar to God in terms of what God's dis, uh, view of social justice is, but it's not the same. Uh, uh, God's view of social justice isn't just let's defend those that are weak and can't handle it, uh, but it's how about we defend them and we come against those that are wrong, not we defend them, including the them that put themselves in that place because they're already wrong in the first place and they just want everybody to be acceptable of what they're doing that's wrong and call that social justice. Uh, I'll let you extrapolate what I mean by that all on your own, um, but 
There's a whole different perspective here of what, what Micah is calling Israel to do. And so in Micah chapter 6, beginning with verse 6, we kind of see the heart of the message of Micah coming forth. Uh, verse 6 says, With what shall I come before Adonai? With what shall I bow myself before God on high? Shall I present him with burnt offerings, with year-old calves? Will Adonai be pleased with thousands of rams, with hordes of rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression? The fruit of my belly for the sin of my soul? He has told you, humanity, what is good, and what Adonai seeks from you, only to practice justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. The voice Adonai calls to the city, it is wisdom to fear your name. Pay attention to the rod and to the one who appointed it. So the heart of the message of Micah is come back to the Lord in righteousness. Because if we go back to the Torah, we recognize that every word of the Torah is to lead us to justice, to mercy, and to humility in the presence of the Lord. If we look at every word of the Bible as a whole, from Genesis to Revelation, every word is calling us to justice, to mercy, and to humility before the Lord. Every single word. You've got to understand, uh, when Israel was at its worst during Micah's days, we even had a king that took two of his sons and offered them as a sacrifice to an idol. If you remember, the Torah says, don't do that. And yet here is the king of Israel doing this, the king of Judah doing this. Uh, so the Lord is clearly fed up with what Israel is going through and what they're dealing with, what they're putting on themselves. And so in Micah, he's calling them back again. But he tells them, it's just like Isaiah the Lord speaking through Micah saying, look, destruction is coming. Like you've gone so far now that you're going to have to experience. Remember when we read the blessings and curses over the last couple of weeks? Uh, the Lord says, if you walk away from my word, walk, con walk contrary to my covenant, then this set of bad circumstances will befall you to wake you up. But if you don't wake up and you continue to do this, then this set of circumstances will befall you. And if that doesn't get your attention, then this set of circumstances he finally gets to where he says, and if that still doesn't wake you up, then this set of circumstances will get you. And they continue to climb in severity until we get to the end where he goes, and once that happens, then you will be drawn back to me because we will have hit rock bottom and had no other option but to turn back to the Lord. And this is exactly what Israel does when we go into Babylonian captivity and the temples destroyed, Jerusalem's destroyed as we wake up to what we did and we strive to realign ourselves with the will of God. But we go to Micah chapter 7, beginning with verse 18. And this is where we get the uh, basis for the tradition of Tashlich from. We go to Micah chapter 7, beginning with verse 18. And uh, here is the culmination of the message from the Lord to the nation of Israel as a whole. As he is telling Israel that destruction is going to befall you. That uh, the, you have brought this on yourself because you've chosen to walk away from relationship and covenant with me. Because you've chosen to chase after the gods all around you. Because as Hosea says, you've chosen to prostitute yourself uh, outside of your relationship with your husband, Adonai. Verse 18 of Micah 7, who is, God like, who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity, overlooking transgression for the remnant of his heritage? He will not retain his anger forever because he delights in mercy. He will again have compassion on us. He will subdue our iniquities and you will cast our sins into the depths of the sea. You will extend truth to Jacob, mercy to Abraham, that you swore to our ancestors from the days of old. You will cast our sins into the depths of the sea. Your anger will not go on forever. Your mercy will renew. It's a powerful message for us to understand because at this point in time, Israel was at their lowest. 
They were living in a despicable fashion. Not only had they set up idolatrous furnishings and sacrifices and such in the Holy Temple, but they had also set up temp- uh, uh, pagan temples and altars and such all around uh, the, the southern kingdom and all around Samaria in order to worship other gods. And they did all of this while also cleaving to, but we're the chosen people, so whatever happens, it's okay because God's still got us under control, but we're just trying to make sure we got all bases covered. We're going to try and make sure we got everything taken care of. So, you know, this guy over here, if he really is a God, doesn't get mad at us. And this one, if he really is, he doesn't get But we know that he's also got us covered, too. So we want to make sure we get all bases covered. But this isn't what the Lord wants. He doesn't want us to s- separate our, our, our dedication out. He wants us to be wholly dedicated in our covenant with him. And so it's this, this miserable idea uh, uh, that Israel was walking in and the Lord was trying to draw us back from. But Truthfully, if we think about it in our own lives, we're not much different. As believers, we're definitely not. A lot of times as believers, we like to, to get this uh, kind of holier-than-thou attitude. Oh, but at least I'm not as bad as dude down the street that doesn't even know the Lord. No, no, you're actually worse. If you're walking in sin as a believer, you're actually worse than dude down the street that doesn't know the Lord. You know why? Because he doesn't know the Lord. And you do. And you've turned your back on him. You know, we think about, and, and I do, I think about things like uh, we are his children. He created us to be his children, right? And I think about how the world around us has entirely turned their back on, on the Lord, on their creator, on their heavenly father, how they want nothing to do with, with a relationship with him. Yet somehow, somehow the Lord still loves them. And even though it breaks his heart watching the world around us literally crumble under the weight and the strain and the pressure of sin and the enemy's grip and the captivity to sin. He still longs and desires for their return, and although his heart is broken because of sin in the world, there is this overwhelming love that that is building within his, his heart that is constantly drawing his creation back into himself. But then I think about us as believers. You know, it's one thing to, to look at it prospectively from the outside world, from the, the mindset of non-believers, but for us as believers in Messiah Yeshua, if we think it breaks his heart when the world that does not know him, that has not come to the realization of the saving grace of the blood of Messiah, if we think it breaks his heart when they sin, what about when we do? What about when we sin in ways that we don't think about? Like when we sin by having a judgmental attitude in the sin of others' lives. What about when we sin by forsaking sharing the message of the Messiah, the gospel with somebody that the Lord clearly put in our path for that purpose. You ever thought about that as a sin before? What about when we sin by getting angry, not a righteous anger, but just angry at the world around us? First off, that's not our place. That's not ours. God's already angry enough of that for, for all of us. He doesn't need us to be angry at it too. Because if we're angry at it, we can't be righteously reaching them. What about when we hurt people? You know, hurt people hurt people. We walk in pains and regrets and hurts and angers from what people have done to us or what we have done to others or what we've allowed ourselves to do to ourselves. And because we walk cowarding and, and, and shivering in fear of the pain and the anguish of, of the, the hurts that we walk around in, we end up hurting other people. And now we've got more people that are running around hurt, hurting people. How much does that break the Lord's heart? I pose to you that 
I believe our sin as believers breaks his heart way more than the sin of the world around us. Because we should, like Israel in the promised land, with the holy temple standing before them, should be walking in a greater state of righteousness. In a state of righteousness that is ever drawn into the presence of the Lord. Not just drawn back into Shabbat and repentance, but drawn into the literal Shekinah. Hebrew says, boldly enter the throne room of God. That is our place. That is our role. That is our calling. But unfortunately, far too often, we are living more like Israel with paganism around us rather than as followers of Messiah clothed in righteousness and washed clean by the blood of the Lamb. In Luke chapter 14, beginning with verse 1, it says, Now, all the tax collectors and sin, sinners were drawing near to, to, to hear Yeshua. The Pharisees and the Torah scholars began to complain, saying, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable, saying, Which man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and loses one of them, will not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the lost one until he finds it? When he has found it, he puts it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors and says, Rejoice with me now. I've found my sheep that was lost. I tell you, in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one repenting sinner than over 99 righteous people who have no need of repentance. Where do you find yourself in this discussion? Are you the one, and I'm going to extrapolate a concept here for you, are you one of the 99 that's so focused on your quote-unquote righteous life that you look down upon the sin of the sinner around you, who the Lord would happily leave you in the, the, the field to go and find and bring back to the fold? Or are you going to emulate Yeshua and be that shepherd that goes after the lost? See, that's what the Lord wants us to be. Because we were at one point that lost sheep that lost lamb, that the Lord left everything behind to go get. Look, he hung on the cross and offered his life so that we could be restored. And he would have done it if it was just one of us. But he did it for all humanity. The least we can do is emulate Messiah and walk in his righteousness to chase down the one. Forsaking the attitude of the, 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 the Pharisees and uh, and the Sadducees, the Torah teachers that come up to him and try to accuse him of doing more. See, this is what the Lord wanted. Israel was called to be a light to the nations, not to condemn the nations. We as the body of Messiah who are grafted in both natural and unnatural branches, grafted into the root and the fatness of the olive tree, we are called to reach out to the world around us. The Great Commission can't be fulfilled if we're judging those that we're supposed to be discipling. We have to live lives that disciple. I wanted to focus today as we talk about Tashlich on the, the, the uh, story in Luke of the prodigal son. It's one of my favorite stories in the Gospels because it's, it speaks fervently to me. And I think to most of us, if we're honest, it speaks to us as a whole. The reality of how our Heavenly Father desires nothing more than for us who have walked away from him to come back. And so as we dig into this, before we actually go to this passage in Luke, I have a, a video that I want to play uh, to lead into this. So I'm going to play it now, and uh, if you guys will watch it, and, uh, and then I'll start talking again in a minute. 
Imagine the prodigal's pilgrimage home, retracing each short-sighted step, back through the distant country, through the time and the money, past all the choices you can never take back, wondering, how will my father react? When that mess of mud-covered hair crests the horizon, a fair father would sit back and wait. But our father isn't fair, and he doesn't hesitate. He runs out to us, unafraid to display his pure joy. And it doesn't matter where we've been, or that our pig pen sin makes us reek. This delirious dad grabs us close and plants kisses on our cheek, clothing us, claiming us, and naming us as his own. Most of all, a fair father would sneak us in the back door, not wanting to relive the public scandal from before, disdaining the din of a neighbor's derisive laugh. But our father isn't fair, so he kills the fattened calf and with great pride invites every neighbor within sight. Come one, come all, it's gonna be a good night. It's a celebration unrivaled, a communal joy unbridled, making this prodigal's pilgrimage home an unforgettable arrival. Thank God our God doesn't give us what we deserve when we come back ready to play the hired hand and serve. When we show up with a plan and a script and try to sew up the relationship we so swiftly ripped. When we slink home broken and pitifully attempt to repair the bridge we so readily burned. Thank God our God doesn't give us what we've earned. Instead, through his Holy Spirit, he gives us an awakening and suddenly we hear it. His still, small voice calling us to open our eyes, to choose brutal honesty over whitewashed lies, to admit aloud when we are starving to death, to let voice and breath make the truth known, and finally to act, to get up and run home. It is time to run home to a father whose forgiveness is unfazed by your failures, whose provision outlasts your prodigal problems, whose healing overwhelms your heavy heartbreak, and whose mercy overcomes your many mistakes. For God's only one and faithful son faced death on a tree and rose again on day three, that you and I might be grafted into this heavenly family that we might rest in this recklessly generous grace, knowing our Savior's gone ahead and He's preparing our place. So prodigal sons and daughters, get on your feet. Lift your voice to this Father who is running to meet you. Sing out in response. Reach up and receive the redemption He's promised, the rescue we need. For he's not only our father, he is our eternal king, whose son took up a cross to rob death of its sting. And a moment of mercy in this father's arms changes everything. If you turn to Luke 15, beginning with verse 11, we see the narrative of the prodigal son. Then Yeshua said, a certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to the father, Father, give me the share of the property that comes to me. So he divided his wealth between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered everything and traveled to a far country, and there he squandered his inheritance on wild living. Now with that, he, uh, now when he had spent everything, a severe famine came into that country, and he began to be in need. 
So he went and joined himself to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. And he was longing to fill up on the carob pods the pigs were eating, but no one was giving him any. But when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired workers have food overflowing, but here I am dying of hunger. I'll get up and go to my father and I'll say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and in your presence I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired workers. And he got up and he went to his father, his own father. But while he was still far away, his father saw him and felt compassion. He ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. Then the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your presence. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, quick, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's celebrate with a feast. For this son of mine was dead and has come back to life. He was lost and is found. Then they began to celebrate. This is one of the most exciting things to read in Scripture. Because here's a number of things that nobody ever talks about when reading the prodigal son. First and foremost, we have to understand Jewish culture in these days. In Jewish culture... This was a wealthy man who had homes and he had herds and he had servants and he had money, um, unimaginable amounts of money and he had two sons, one who was firstborn who was going to inherit a double portion and one who was the secondborn who was going to inherit a single portion. And the younger comes to his father and says, I want my share now. Now what you have to understand is the pain and the anguish in the father's heart. Because by saying, I want my share of the inheritance now, what he was in essence saying to his father was, you're dead to me. I'm done with you, and I'm leaving. And his father, graciously, because he loves his son, divvied up his portion, and gave it to him, and sent him on his way. And the son packs up everything that he has, and he takes off as far as he can run. And he lives the life that he always thought he wanted to live until he runs out of money. And about the same time he runs out of money, everything falls to mess around him. And he finds himself in the pits with the pigs, and he doesn't even have food as quality as what the pigs are eating. And he says, even servants in my father's home eat better than this. I'll just go back and ask if I can be a servant. So first thing, he tells his father, you're dead to me, I'm done with you. And then he takes off. And the father graciously gives him what he wants and lets him leave. Graciously releases him to go live the life of spoil and sorrow and sadness that he so terribly desires. But then on the other end, end of the discussion, we have the father. When the father saw his son come up from a distance, you got to understand... It wasn't just by happenstance. He didn't just see some shadow off in the distance and, and, and it catch the, the peripheral of his vision while he was working with his older son or he was helping the servants with whatever. It wasn't just something that happened and he went, oh, what was it? And took a double take and, oh, there's some shadow out there. Let's wait and see what comes. He had been sitting there ever since his son waited, uh, left waiting for him to return. While his son said, you're dead to me, he said, I will never give up hope. While the son said, I want nothing more to do with you. I want the life that I want. He said, I'll sit here waiting. One day you'll come back. One day I will have the opportunity to be restored. And when he comes back running, he comes back to his father ready to grovel, to fall on his face. 
and ask his father to forgive him. Now, I don't know in all honesty that the son's heart was necessarily truly repentant or that he was just tired of living in the squalor that he had come used to. But I know this, the father's heart was far more gracious and merciful than the son could have ever imagined. And so when he saw his son coming down the street, still off in a distance, he takes off running. He had been there waiting the whole time, watching the runway, the driveway as he was coming, waiting for him to come down this road. And the moment he saw him in the distance, he took off running. And he got to him as fast as he could. And as the son falls on his face before his father and begs for mercy, he picks him up and he wraps his arms around him and he plants a giant, I picture a giant Russian kiss on the cheek, gives him this giant kiss. And then he calls out to his wife, son's just begging for scraps. He calls out to his servants and says, get the best that we have to offer. Make a meal, bring the best clothes that we have. Clean him up, let's get him dressed. Bring in all of our friends and all of our family because my son who was once dead is now alive again. Notice while the son was telling the father, you're dead to me, it wasn't the father that died, it was the son. And he says, my son who was once dead is now live again. Let us rejoice because the Lord has brought him back to me. See, the Lord doesn't tell this narrative just for kicks and giggles. But instead, because this is the reality of who we are. We are that prodigal son. Israel is that prodigal son. Each and every one of us individually hearing these words today is that prodigal son or daughter. We told our creator, who we were created in the image and likeness of, that we didn't need him anymore, that he was dead to us. So much so that was in the 60s or 70s when Time Magazine wrote a cover, the cover of their magazine said, God is dead. We told God, you're dead to me. I don't need you anymore. I can do this on my own. Yet our Heavenly Father stood there at the edge of the driveway waiting for us the entire time, watching us, every move that we made. And what the prodigal son doesn't realize, when we extrapolate this to our own lives, what the prodigal son doesn't realize is even while those scraps are all that we have to eat, the Lord still provided those because he wasn't giving up hope on us. Even though we ran out of everything, the Lord still had everything waiting for us. When we come back running, he's been there the whole time with his arms wide open waiting for us. And when we look at the prophet Micah and the words of destruction, the promise of uh, captivity that was to come to the nation of Israel because of our sins and our mistakes, the reality is, is the message that we get from Micah is the same message that we get from Isaiah and from Jeremiah and from Hosea and every other uh, uh, person that the Lord used to write the words of the scriptures. Was you have walked away from me. You have turned your back on me. All you have to do is come back. All you have to do is return. I'm here waiting. I want you to be mine. When we go back to Micah 6. Verse 6, he says, What shall I come before Adonai? With what shall I come before Adonai? 
With what shall I bow myself before God on high? Shall I present him with burnt offerings with a year old calf? Will Adonai be pleased with the thousands of rams, with hordes of rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my belly for the sin of my soul? This is the prodigal son running back to his father. Before God and you have I sinned. And these next words are the father of the prodigal son. He has told you, humanity, what is good and what Adonai seeks from you. Only to practice justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. All that the father has wanted from his creation since we chose sin over his kingdom was to walk hand in hand with us again was for us to be made righteous and holy and clean, that we could walk hand in hand with our Father again. All he's ever wanted is to wrap his embrace around us, to give us a kiss, and to throw us the finest of feasts. And as we return to him in true teshuvah by the blood of the Lamb, as we enter into these ten days of awe and repentance leading to Yom Kippur, as we focus on repentance and return, it's important for us to understand that as we do so, we are preparing ourselves as that prodigal son restored and renewed back from the dead for a great wedding feast that is awaiting us. It's not just that we told our father we wanted our inheritance and ran. But our sins tell our Heavenly Father He's dead. We don't need Him. We're better off alone. And He's standing there saying, you'll come back to me. And I imagine Him saying, I pray it sooner rather than later. And when we finally do turn around, there He is with His arms wide open. I imagine as we begin to repent of our sins that the Lord stops listening at, forgive me. Because he already knows everything else. He doesn't stop listening as though he doesn't want to hear the rest of it, but he stops listening to wrap his arms around us and to hug us and to love us and to tell us he forgives us and to tell us he's restoring us and we're renewed and we've never been forgotten or forsaken. I think about me and my own children. I was uh, texting earlier during uh, uh, worship as uh, Blake uh, Bridges, uh, you know, Blake and Holly just had their, their uh, first child the other day, and Blake texts me a picture of their, of their son and says, look at, my, look at our miracle baby. So we're talking back and forth. He goes, dude, you know, this has entirely changed my perspective of my relationship with God as my father. And I said, dude, wait till the first time you have to correct your child. Wait till the first time you have to correct your child. You'll really really have a change of perspective. But when you're a, a parent, when you're a mother or your father, and you hold that child for the first time in your arms, and you think about the overwhelming, all-encompassing love and compassion you have, the sheer desire you have to do nothing but protect this child from ever experiencing anything of the worst that humanity has to offer, it pales in comparison to what our Heavenly Father's love is for us. And when I think about my own son and my daughter and the times that I have to correct them, 
I have a practice that I do because I strive to, as best I can, as a human who is going to inevitably fail it uh, more often than not, uh, I try my best to relay the, my understanding of our Heavenly Father's love and forgiveness for us to my children when I have to correct them. And when I have to correct them, as soon as I, I, I do, you know, have to, as soon as I correct them, if I uh, have to punish them, whatever, you put them in the corner, spank their rear, whatever it is, the immediate thing I do after the punishment is I give them a big hug. Give them a kiss on the cheek. I tell them I love you. I forgive you. Whatever you've done doesn't matter. It doesn't change who you are or what I think of you. But I want you to know that I love you no matter what. And it's in those moments that you see the greatest understanding in your children's eyes of what love really is. And I pray that my children never walk in in, uh, in their life in a way that they have to experience the reality of returning to the Lord like a prodigal son. But I know that should they ever fall in that place, that I have done my best to show them an example of what our Heavenly Father has in store for them when He comes running back to the Lord. And I want you to understand if you've been a believer your whole life, for 10 years, for a week and a half, or you don't yet know Messiah, Every time you choose to mar the image and likeness of your creator that you were created in, your heavenly father is still there waiting for you to return. I don't care how deep and dark and nasty the world you found yourself wallowing is in. I don't care if you've literally found yourself in the pig pen of humanity. And it's easy to find. The Lord is there waiting your heavenly father longs for you and he offered his only begotten son so that you and I could be restored through a perfect sacrifice, one not made of human hands but provided by God himself. And there's a giant feast awaiting us. And the Lord wants nothing more than for you to have a seat at it. So I encourage you on this Rosh Hashanah as we move into this season of repentance don't let it just be a 10-day thing in your life. Don't let it be something that you start today and you're thinking about for the next few, few days and the Yom Kippur, you go through the shenanigans of all the liturgy and then you go about your life again the next day. Let today, let these next 10 days, let Yom Kippur be a beginning of a practice of discipleship in your life to moment by moment, day by day, year by year, continually be walking in Teshuvah so that you never miss out on your heavenly Father's embrace, so that the world around you may see his love not just on you but shining through you in a way that touches their hearts and their lives. Being the prodigal son may be miserable on the outside, but the moment we're in the Father's arms again, there's nowhere better than to be the prodigal son who has returned and knows the love of his Father who never gave up hope. Avrahamim, Father of mercies, we love you, we worship you, and we adore you. Lord, I thank you that you are a gracious and loving Father. Lord, I thank you that no matter how far we run away from you, that we can never run far enough, that we can never outrun your love, that we can never outrun your draw, that we can never outrun your compassion that we can never outsin your capacity for forgiveness. 
Lord, I thank you that every waking moment that we breathe the breath of life, that you are calling us unto yourself. Father, I pray that every person that hears these words today will be touched by you and by your hand and that we will fill your miraculous, divine, heavenly Father embrace around us. That we will be consumed by the love and compassion of our heavenly Father. And that we will wholeheartedly sell out entirely for you from this moment forward. V'shem Yeshua Meshachinu, in the name of Yeshua, our Messiah, we pray. And everyone says, Amen. Amen.